0: Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, There is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxingmatters. Talk to us about the life cycle of an HMRC inquiry, we are joined by John Cassidy, Tax Resolutions Partner at Crow UK. John, a fellow of the ICANW, where he is the Deputy Chair of the Compliance and Investigations Committee and a member of the Chartered Institute of Taxation and Management of Taxes Committees, has over 25 years of experience in investigations and disputes. John has written and lectured on investigation practices and HMRC's tax powers, including writing and contributing to two major tax tones, there's no better word for it. But more significantly, John has recently found out that he still, more than 30 years later, holds his secondary school's record for the long jump. That is quite the achievement. John, welcome to Taxing Matters. Thank
1: you, Alice. Today, I just want to go through the life cycle of a self-assessment inquiry using real-life scenarios and cases that I've come across, because what I'm seeing nowadays is HMRC in particular has lost sight of what the detail of the rules are. And I think, unfortunately, so have a number of uh, advisors. And what we have now is the HMRC asks questions and people answer those questions and nobody you know, gives any real thoughts about the minutiae of the rules. And it can be important because they can shape the way that the inquiry progresses and develops. So, Starting with the opening of the inquiry, I think there are some crucial initial checks that should be made. First of all, and this may sound obvious, has the inquiry been opened on time? I've seen a recent example where the advisor answered all of HMRC's questions, which led HMRC to believe that there were irregularities with that return, which could then be related back to earlier years, which could lead to penalties. As it turned out, the inquiry was opened late, but not obviously, because the date on the letter was within the 12-month window. But what we have to ask ourselves is, when was that letter received? When did it land on the client's doormat? And quite clearly, most of our clients are not going to make a note of that and put a date stamp on it. So we have a rule of thumb that says, well, look at the date on the letter and add four working days and that will be the deemed date of receipt. And given that HMRC opens a lot of inquiries close to the deadline, there's a chance that the deadline has been missed by the time the letter has been received. Obviously, answering HMRC's questions, if that is to the detriment of the client, you're looking at potential PI issues as well as a, a longer inquiry than is necessary. I think another crucial opening check is to be aware of who the inquiry is into. For example, in a group of companies, is the inquiry into a specific company? Is it into the holding company? That doesn't give HMRC the right to ask questions about all of the companies, only the company under inquiry. I think also, who is the inquiry from? It's more difficult these days because HMRC has bland PO box type addresses shown on the letters. And on their sign-off, it uh, doesn't really show necessarily who the inspector is. But sometimes there can be some clues. I, I have a recent case where there was nothing really as a giveaway in the address, but there was in the sign-off the words or the letters POC were included. Now, POC means Proceeds of Crime. It's the old Criminal Taxes Unit So immediately you think, well, hang on, this has changed my thinking about which direction this inquiry is going into. The the, the final point on the opening of an inquiry, I think, is to ask yourself why it's been opened. It's very unlikely to be random. HMRC will have done a risk assessment. In the opening letter, they sometimes give a reason, but that itself is very bland. It says, uh, I've opened the inquiry in order to check your tax return. You can't always figure out why it's been open, but sometimes there are little clues. I have a a very recent case where the inspector was asking about employment income. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is that a difficult question? Surely there's a P60. It's the easiest question to answer. But a little bit of digging found that the company accounts filed at Companies House showed that the stated director's remuneration was a lot higher than the P60, So there might well be a perfectly reasonable explanation for that, but your starting point is, hang on, something needs to be explored here.
0: So given all of those opening inquiries, what are the things that businesses should start by doing if they do receive any kind of inquiry opening letter? Good question,
1: Alice. I think the the very first thing they should do in every single case is to check the date. Now, it's not just the date on the letter and the date of receipt that's crucial. What date was the tax return submitted? I have seen HMRC saying that the tax return was submitted on, say, the 31st of January, and you check the systems, and it was actually the 21st of January, something like that. So, I think that's the one key thing to do every time.
0: Great. So, after the opening of the inquiry, what's the next stage of the life cycle?
1: Okay, The next stage will be during the inquiry, which largely focuses on HMRC information requests. Now, Over the years, I think I've seen these get wider and wider, and we need to remember that HMRC does not have unfettered access to information just because they want it. HMRC will quote the legislation which does refer to checking a taxpayer's tax position, and that is defined as the past, present and future um, position regarding any tax. And checking that position is defined as an inquiry or investigation of any kind. So HMRC will often quote that, but they will often then forget that the same legislation has a whole section headed up restrictions on powers. And that makes it much clearer that, first of all, there must be a valid open inquiry. And secondly, they can then ask questions into that chargeable period. Now, remember, an inquiry is questioning a tax return. So we must be mindful of those restrictions and not get drawn into trying to be too helpful and answering questions about different entities and different periods. Otherwise, experience shows that just leads HMRC down a particular path and you end up expanding the questions as they go down that path. One extreme example, I have a corporate case at the moment that should be reasonably straightforward. The company is owned by a trust and the trust obviously has other Uh, entities that it owns as well and HMRC has started asking questions not only about the company under inquiry but about different years for that company, different entities that the trust owns and the trust itself and even the set law of that trust from several decades ago and we need to be mindful of where the boundaries are and quite rightly there are boundaries and safeguards. Sometimes HMRC is interested in something that's happened before the inquiry year, and what we're seeing quite a lot of at the moment is the type of question that says, "Well, we see what your declared income is from your tax returns, but your house that you live in costs quite a lot. It seems to be out of kilter with that declared income. How did you finance the acquisition of that property?" Now, of course, if the acquisition of that property was, you know, ten years ago, on the face of it, that's nothing to do with the inquiry and ordinarily, we can dismiss that question quite easily. I do see a number of times that people have tried to answer that question, which naturally then leads to further questions from HMRC about your income at the time you funded that property. But I would say don't dismiss it out of hand. A very recent example I've seen, the client informed us how the property was funded, and unfortunately, that unearthed a six-figure capital gain, which had inadvertently not been declared at the time. Now, the way I normally approach these sort of questions that I don't think HMRC is entitled to is to ask the client to answer the question for me, because the answer that the client gives can then shape how I approach HMRC. That data isn't necessarily passed on, but it can help me with how to plan the the inquiry going forward. I think it's also worth mentioning that HMRC often mix up the inquiry legislation with the discovery legislation, and they can interact, but with a self-assessment inquiry, we are back to the position that it is an inquiry into a tax return into an entity. Again, an inquiry letter into the holding company of a group of companies does not allow HMRC to ask questions about the entire group, just the company with the opening letter.
0: So, if you had to pull out two of the most important lessons that taxpayers need to bear in mind that you've learned from your experience during the life cycle of an inquiry,
1: what would those two be? First of all, I would say don't try and be too helpful. That does lead to providing more data than is necessary to HMRC, and that inevitably leads to more avenues for HMRC to go down, which could have been avoided and may well be irrelevant. The worst case of that I've seen is where HMRC were asking about a property that was acquired 10 years before the inquiry year and the taxpayer had dealt with that inquiry himself and eventually asked for help and it turned out that the same question had been asked in three inquiries prior to the current one and those three inquiries had been closed. So that gives us further ammunition to say, well, hang on a minute, what sort of beast are we dealing with here? The worst case I've seen where the taxpayer has tried to deal with it themselves is the inquiry has lasted 11 years and is still ongoing. And we've been involved for about a year now. But again, it's human nature to try and be helpful. Directors of this particular corporate tried very hard to be helpful and to answer HMRC's questions, which evolved into questions about the past, and they're pretty impossible to answer because your time has moved on, memories fade, records aren't available, etc., and it all stemmed from trying to be too helpful at, at the outset. Having said that, uh, I don't think it's right that in every case we put up the shutters and and provide as little as possible. I think we have to consider what is being requested and what the answers to those questions are and how do we best move the inquiry forward in a collaborative way. The HMRC's litigation and settlement strategy talks throughout about working collaboratively, which doesn't mean that HMRC asks questions and we answer them. Uh, It means we work together. So, I think work collaboratively, but we always need to have an eye on where are the boundaries. The safeguards are there for a reason, and we should try and keep control of the management of the case going forward, not just react to HMRC.
0: So, what about when the inquiry has come
1: to an end? What happens then? Well, there's a number of things to think about here. I've just mentioned the litigation and settlement strategy, which is a bit of a straitjacket for HMRC. It says that If HMRC thinks they're right about something, then they cannot compromise on that. That might be seen as a bit of a barrier to bringing a disputed matter to an end in an inquiry. But my experience is that HMRC generally are still reasonably flexible in these matters. For instance, I have a case at the moment where there's a complete lack of records but it's pretty obvious that some rental income has not been declared and it's pretty obvious that some repair expenditure happened on the properties in question. So we've had a discussion and come to a negotiated trade-off on that and HMRC does retain some flexibility to bring matters to an end. Don't think that all is lost because of the litigation and settlement strategy. The second thing I think is that once an inquiry is closing, and adjustments have been found, HMRC will often look to try and relate back those adjustments to earlier years under the so-called presumption of continuity. If it happened this year, it must have happened last year and the year before. To quote a recent case, HMRC said that, and I now quote, it is accepted practice to review earlier years to check for further omissions. Well, that is not actually correct. The presumption of continuity is not carte blanche for HMRC to look at earlier years to try and unearth any irregularities of any nature. What we need to remember is that HMRC must be able to say the adjustment this year looks to be part of a predictable pattern. Something like, we've analysed marketing expenses and we found some entertaining in there. Unless your accounting procedures have changed, you probably did the same last year and the year before. So don't just accept going back to earlier years. And remember that going back to earlier years does bring in all the rules about discovery assessments. So again, another complex area, but not one for today. We will also um, potentially face penalties when an inquiry is being closed, if there are adjustments. Penalties nowadays are complicated. They used to be quite straightforward, but there are so many different types of penalties. Make sure that the penalty is right. I've seen scenarios where HMRC has applied the wrong type of penalty or tried to. I've seen scenarios where they've mixed up UK income and offshore income and applied the same penalty, which with offshore income can be a very big penalty indeed. I've seen HMRC argue that a taxpayer got his return deliberately wrong because the incorrect entry didn't get on there by accident. Uh, And that just simply isn't the test. I've also seen uh, an argument for deliberately uh, incorrect return when it was pretty obvious that the taxpayer had tried very hard to get the return right, but had ended up getting it wrong anyway. I think with penalties, if there's an offshore matter that is being adjusted, the penalties can be, they will be, 100% plus of the tax that is being assessed, more likely to be 150% plus if it's a prompted uh, adjustment, which it most likely is if it's the result of an inquiry. So we need to be very careful about reasonable excuse in those scenarios. Reasonable excuse is itself a complicated area, but it is one where HMRC rely heavily on their guidance rather than the decided cases, and there can often be quite a divergence between the two. So I think if you're looking at a large penalty and reasonable excuse, there are good arguments out there, and try and build a case to see if if it can be challenged. If we're looking at deliberate behaviour or careless behaviour for the reason why the tax return was incorrect, don't forget that the burden of proof of that is on HMRC. It's not for our clients to prove to HMRC that they did not act carelessly. It's the other way around. Don't forget suspension of penalties. For careless penalties, all careless penalties are capable of suspension if you can find suitable suspension conditions. Often HMRC say that there are no suitable suspension conditions, so it's up to us to figure out what they are. Just one more thing. If an inquiry is dragging on and you think that all the questions have been answered and it's going nowhere, don't lose sight of the fact that the taxpayer has a right to apply for a closure notice. You can make a closure notice application to the tribunal. Now, the tribunal doesn't have to give, it doesn't have to force the closure, but again, the burden is on HMRC. It's for HMRC to convince the tribunal that the case should stay open not for the taxpayer to convince the tribunal that it should be closed. And we've had recent experience in a couple of cases where we made the application for a closure notice and HMRC withdrew very quickly.
0: So taking all of that into account, what first steps and what last steps would you say that businesses need to keep in mind when they are thinking about approaching anyone for advice on an inquiry that has been opened?
1: I think the, the first steps that they should be thinking about is what stage are we at in the inquiry? Have we done the checks that we ought to? Do we know what the checks we ought to be taking are and the, and the details that might shape the whole direction of the inquiry? But I think there comes a time when the last step is to say, well, I I think this inquiry has run its course. How do we go about moving it forward? And that might be thinking about a closure notice application. It might be thinking about, well, what issues are still on the table? Can we go for a partial closure notice for some of the issues? It might be thinking about, well, where do we feel really strongly and where do we not particularly mind giving up an issue And where might there be some flexibility that we can negotiate something with HMRC? It's different in every case. You know, you think of a a bespoke plan to say, well, how do we navigate from where we are now to where we want to be? And sometimes that's not possible and we end up at the tribunal, but a lot of the times it is. I think uh, HMRC does like to ask the same question um, over and over at times where they're where they're not necessarily convinced that the answer they've previously had is is, is right or that there's nothing more to see here. It is absolutely open to HMRC to cover the same ground year after year in different inquiries. But I think the position we get to then is that when they ask those questions, is it reasonably required? So theoretically, HMRC could ask about uh, a, a particular issue in year one. That inquiry is closed. They can ask the same issue in year two. A different inspector can ask it again in year three, if it's relevant to year two and three, that is. But there comes a point when you say, well, hang on. In order to force me to answer questions, you're going to have to issue an information notice eventually. And a prerequisite for an information notice is that the data being requested is reasonably required for the purpose of checking the taxpayer's position. And I think there comes a point when you say, hang on a minute, you know, this question has been asked and answered before. You know, it's not reasonable to carry on with the same thing. But we do see it um, you know, quite a lot nowadays.
0: Well, thank you very much, John, for taking us through the life cycle of an investigation. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius, Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. We'll be